T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Today on the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast, I'm going to do a little bit of an archive show. Um, Today, I'm going to present an interview that I did with um, Sinead Willihan with Evan Alexander, uh, the reason I'm presenting this is I'm working on a book now on the potential 10 things that were given to us that may not have been random in the last couple hundred years that may have changed the world. One of them has to do with um, uh, CPR, uh, the use of um, high-tech equipment inside ambulances, and uh, trauma units inside hospitals. All were invented by one particular guy. And that led to a rash of um, near-death experiences. There was very few before that that brought on the near-death experiences, which is a major event that has uh, changed the way we think of things and how life works. So in light of one of those 10 things, the near-death experience, the CPR, all that kind of stuff, I present this uh, very interesting interview with Evan Alexander, uh, the former... uh, professor at um, Harvard, neurologist, who had uh, what has now become a very famous near-death experience. Please enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Sinead Willihan, and I am here with Grant Cameron today. We are very, very honored to interview a very special person, Dr. Evan Alexander, who's here with us today to talk about consciousness, not only from the perspective of his own personal journey of having an NDE in 2008, but also from all the work that he's done in the field since then and how his perspective has changed on the collaboration, the the connection between consciousness and spirituality and science. So Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. We're excited. We're looking forward to it. And Grant, hello, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to be here. We all are honored that we, we have a situation where um, I talk about this kind of stuff all the time, and now we have actually someone who's an authority who has some sort of reputation, and now I can just say, uh, here's what uh, Dr. Alexander says, go argue with him. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> good plan. Well, Dr. Alexander, we thought that we could start with uh, your origin story, so to speak, you know, the NDE that you had in 2008 and how, how profoundly that changed your life. I will do a very quick summary. Um, the information is out there. You've told it many, many times. So to kind of save you the trouble of doing that, I'll just do a brief summary. Um, you contracted a very serious brain infection 
which affected all eight lobes of your brain. And at the beginning, you were in a coma for a week. At the beginning of the week, you had a 10% chance of survival. By the end of the week, a 2% chance, not much of a successful chance of recovery. Yet you came out of that experience fully recovered and no one in Western medicine was able to explain this. So that is really quite an extraordinary story. And uh, with your background in medical science and then your venturing into spiritual studies and combining that with medicine and combining that with science, quantum mechanics and all kinds of other fascinating things, you really have such an incredible wealth of information to share. And I think people are really going to eat this up. So we start with where you came from in terms of your experience having the NDE. Um, you mentioned that that was a more real experience for you than this so-called reality. And I was wondering if you could start a bit by talking about that. You know, why was it more real where you were than being here? Okay, uh, excellent set of questions. First of all, I'd like to point out that today is my rebirth day. It's November 16th. That's the day I came out of coma 12 years ago today. So I'm oh, celebrating a little bit of a birthday with you guys. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's good timing. Now, uh, getting into your questions of, you know, I, I had started my life before coma, uh, spent 54 years honing a very conventional scientific worldview. Uh, I trained in neurosurgery at Duke. My father had been a very active uh, academic neurosurgeon. He ran a training program. So neurosurgery was part of my growing up, and he was very much a scientist. I was always a scientist. I'm more of a scientist now than I've ever been. But I also realized that the conventional uh, science of, of what's known as physicalism, that is only the physical world exists, and there's nothing outside of that. So that things like consciousness, uh, thoughts, uh, feelings, uh, awareness, perceptions, they have no basis in reality according to that science. But that's a major uh, mistake to make. Uh, at any rate, I had spent my life honing that uh, scientific worldview, supporting physicalism, uh, I'd heard occasional tales from my patients of their own extraordinary journeys, but uh, fully buying into the assumption, the false assumption that the brain creates consciousness out of physical matter, uh, I simply would shrug my shoulders and say, well, I don't know how to explain it to them, but I guess the dying brain can play all kinds of tricks. That's why it was so important to have my own experience. And um, it, uh, you know, as you, as you said, it's been told many a time, so I won't go into any uh, detail, but the bottom line is over just three and a half hours early in the morning of November 10th of 2008, I was driven deep into coma with a severe bacterial meningoencephalitis uh, that my doctors basically, uh, by, by day seven of coma, they thought I was down to a 2% chance of survival uh, with really no chance of recovery. Uh, and that's why I think there's a, there's a case report on my medical records. It's very important for anyone who is not aware of it all. And that has to do with the extreme deadly nature of my meningoencephalitis. And it really is a case that you wouldn't expect to have any kind of conscious awareness because of the documented damage to my neocortex and really to the rest of my brain. Even my uh, uh, brainstem was damaged uh, from day one. Uh, so it was a very severe case. And that uh, case report came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September of 2018. Anybody who wants to get to that case report can get it for free on my website. If you go to evanalexander.com, look at my blog postings, uh, and there's a posting there from September 2018 about how the recently published uh, case report validates the medical facts in my case. In fact, they went a lot further than I did in Proof of Heaven, 
uh, and, and came to a much more stunning degree of uh, impairment uh, than I had postulated based on my brief review of my medical records. They spent two years reviewing the medical records. And in fact, uh, when challenged by the peer reviewers, you know, how do you explain this? Because just like I was haunted by reviewing my medical records, because I felt like I was reviewing the records of someone who would go on to die, not someone who would end up having a full recovery, uh, which is what I was blessed with over two months. Uh, and likewise, uh, the, the medical, uh, the, the three medical doctors who reviewed my records for that report, who were not involved in my care, but were fascinated by my uh, complete recovery. Um, they were the ones who, uh, when challenged by the peer reviewers, how do you explain this case? You know, because it doesn't line up. These are the records of someone who's destined to die, not really someone who is going to end up making a full recovery. And they explained it by saying I had a near-death experience. And these physicians were wise enough and had read enough other cases or, or things that they'd experienced themselves and seen themselves that they realized that was what made the big difference here, was this profound spiritual journey uh, that, uh, you know, that we describe not only in the book Proof of Heaven, uh, but going to much more detail uh, in terms of explaining it all scientifically in the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, that was co-written with, uh, with my life partner, uh, Karen Newell. Uh, and of course, my work with her in Sacred Acoustics, the, um, the work that she does in uh, engendering uh, transcendental uh, differential frequency sounds for uh, very transcendental states of conscious awareness, uh, it all is a very natural fit. The work I do now with meditation, helping people get into deep transcendental states to realize they're much more than just their physical body and much more than just that running stream of thoughts in their head. And this is where I think near-death experiences in many ways wake up this world to uh, kind of the fascinating nature of human existence. And that's where uh, we really need to go with, with the lead on this. And uh, uh, all come to realize the deep lessons provided by NDEs can be useful to all of us in our own becoming more whole uh, and healing in these lives. Yes, I noticed that uh, one of the things that you've often said is that NDEs are really a unifying thing. They are they are about unity. They're about uh, the all the one mind, as you call it, that we are all part of. And there's another quote that I really like that you use. Very simple, but it's a great sort of jumping off point into. Um, a deeper part of this discussion. What you said was, we are conscious in spite of our brain. And it right. made me think of um, you know, your, all your work uh, in terms of investigating the development of medical science you know, from the 17th century onwards. And then of course, by the, 20, the 20th century, we become so much more entrenched in the materialism of science, right? But here we are entering into a new phase where people are starting to understand that there's this partnership, a natural partnership between spirituality slash consciousness and, uh, and science. So when you said we are conscious in spite of our brain, can you elaborate on that? Yes, uh, it's because the brain mainly serves to kind of limit conscious awareness. It, uh, it, it uh, tends to uh, kind of drive our human awareness down to this tiny little trickle of a here and now and a sense of self and access to some memories. Uh, but in fact, um, I, I think that the evidence is there for uh, much greater conscious awareness than anything that might simply be created by the, by the brain. There's a quote from Werner Heisenberg, who's one of the founding fathers of quantum physics, and I love it because I think it really hits the nail on the head. He said, the first sip from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism, but at the bottom of the glass 
God is waiting for you. Uh, and what he meant by that, he was very aware of where this uh, revolution around quantum physics was going. And uh, from the very beginning in the early 20th century, uh, the founding fathers of quantum physics, uh, many of them, uh, there are fantastic quotes about how they all acknowledge that consciousness uh, is this thing that seems to be unified. It seems to be uh, kind of independent of, of physical matter and the brain. Uh, and that in fact, we're all sharing that, that one mind. There are quotes from, uh, from Max Planck, uh, from Louis de Broglie, from Eugene Wigner, from Erwin Schrodinger. Uh, all of these fathers of the field of quantum physics realized there was something very deep and uh, kind of mysterious that the experiments, you know, just looking at the world around us, looking at the subatomic particles and atoms and molecules that make up this world, uh, they're decidedly unreal in their own behavior. Uh, and what he came to realize is that the kind of presumed uh, determinism that would come out of Newtonian kind of mechanics, which was the science of the time, uh, was definitely one of, well, if we understand the state of a system now, and we know the laws that govern all the interactions of the parts, then we can predict where that system is going to evolve in the future. So in other words, that Newtonian determinism completely removes the concept of free will from being possible uh, when you're studying the substance of the brain, for example, uh, and its relationship to consciousness. And that's why the quantum revolution is so gigantic, because in fact, quantum physics is one of the most direct expressions of the, of the brain-mind question. Uh, and it shows us very clearly uh, that there is an open-endedness in the, in the quantum world uh, that leads to all possible futures as an outcome. But what you have to realize is that there's a top-down set of causal principles that organize all this. And this is what I think is becoming more and more apparent to those who study science, the science of consciousness, uh, is that top-down organization, which is very accepted in the world of quantum physics. I mean, the whole notion, uh, you know, many quantum physicists believe that you have to have infinite parallel universes, you know, Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation to explain the uh, results of quantum experiments. But what they're failing to realize is if you place consciousness first and realize that uh, there's a uniformity to consciousness and there's a role that uh, the mind of the conscious observer plays, say, uh, in a quantum experiment, uh, whether you want to observe a photon as having wave or particle properties. And that very kind of mental free will is what set, sets the stage for the experiments to reveal the behavior of the subatomic world. And when it does so, it does so in a very dramatic fashion that shows the primacy of consciousness. Uh, and that's where I think this world is finally waking up to uh, exactly what Heisenberg was pointing to in his statement. And many people for decades have kind of realized where this is going, but it's only in the modern focus of studying consciousness itself from a scientific perspective uh, that we really start getting into the depths of this. And uh, so I often talk about the consilience of information. That just means when you look at uh, the universe in many different ways, like quantum physics is a way of looking at the subatomic world and our observations of that. Uh, and it strongly suggests that there is an overlying, uh, you know, uh, predominant uh, mental universe. And that's where everything comes from. And we're, we're mental beings, you know, we're sentient beings. So we have access to those mental layers of the universe. Um, and, and then there are many other features of addressing consciousness. For one example is uh, the hard problem of consciousness, which was first put out by 
David Chalmers, an Australian philosopher in the mid 20s, or sorry, in the mid 1990s. Uh, and he made it very clear that you cannot assume that the physical workings of the brain will lead you uh, to how consciousness evolves. Uh, there was work that had been done by Walter Penfield, one of the most renowned neurosurgeons of the 20th century. In the book he wrote in 1975 called Mystery of the Mind, he had stimulated the brain and awake patients, uh, you know, hundreds of times and come to the very strong conclusion that you cannot uh, postulate that mind is a uh, derivative from the physical matter of the brain because there's too much going on with mind and it goes far beyond what you can explain from what we know about the brain itself. And then you have uh, things like the philosophy of mind problem with the binding problem that consciousness in an individual seems to be so unified. You know, everything that I see and taste and smell and feel and touch all at once is combined into one unified whole. And that, uh, how that could actually happen from a physicalist viewpoint is very difficult to explain. And then finally, there are all the examples of non-local consciousness that come out of the worlds of psychology and parapsychology. Uh, for example, telepathy. And telepathy in twins uh, is, has been very well proven. Telepathy in other settings uh, is certainly there and you can demonstrate it. But telepathy is one example that our minds can kind of intersect with other minds. Uh, and those minds don't have to be belonging to brains that are in bodies physically alive because there's a tremendous literature on after-death communication of deathbed visions where people reunite with souls of departed loved ones at the time of their physical demise. So we can connect with minds that are both uh, resident in brains still in bodies living in this planet, but also with minds that have left the physical plane. Then there's remote viewing, the ability of of um, properly trained people to discern information across space and time. It's used by intelligence agencies. The psychic spy programs uh, uh, are, are a good example. Um, precognition, the ability to know the future from the experiments of Daryl Bim and others. Uh, you know, all these things are very kind of striking, but what they show us is this fundamental nature of mind that is independent of time and space and of this sense of self. And so I would also include near-death experiences, shared death experiences, which are just like near-death experiences, but they happen in people who are uh, generally healthy, physiologically normal. Uh, say someone who uh, is at the bedside of a dying loved one. Uh, and then their soul goes along as the soul of the dying loved one departs, the soul of the bystander goes along. That's called a shared death experience even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review uh, and then coming back to this world. So these are all examples of human experiences that completely defy the physicalist production model that the brain produces consciousness and start to open the door to people entertaining that consciousness is much bigger than all of that. And that's where I think the modern science is headed. Yes, I mean, thank you. That was such a wonderful uh, summary of so much rich knowledge that you've managed to gather. Um, it makes me think of your NDE, because one of the things that you've often said is that, um, uh, you know, just in giving us the background for why we should take this new knowledge and understanding and information seriously is how medical science is, um, is changing and, you know, becoming a little bit more open to things like quantum mechanics. So you've referred to, for example, that uh, for most of time when, you know, since medical science became a more formal practice, 
we thought that consciousness comes from the brain. Now the best theory that we can come up with that still kind of is within that school of materialism is the filter theory, but the, the brain is simply a tool to filter consciousness through. And therefore, uh, you know, when, when you die, when the brain dies, the consciousness does not also die, it continues on. And that links to ideas about reincarnation and the afterlife and all kinds of other things. Um, but it makes me think too of the, the physicality that you described in terms of your NDE in correlation to the actual NDE experience. You talked about how um, your, your neocortex is being devastated by the encephalitis. It was really just chewing away in there and determined to wreak havoc on your physicality. Right. Yet that had no impact on the depth of experience that you had within the first one to five days of your coma when you were in this other realm and so deeply in it that when you came out, you couldn't remember your previous life. You could only remember the experience of having been in that realm. I believe it took you eight weeks to come to, to sort right. of your, your human memories. So what was interesting to me was that um, I saw a, a correlation between two descriptions you gave. One was the physical description of your neocortex being devastated by the um, encephalitis. And the other was the experience of going into this realm, going into this state that you were in for all, the, all these uh, days. And you were talking about the, that you went into, at one point, you went into a state where you felt like everything was completely collapsing. Anything that you knew of was completely collapsing into itself. But rather than disappearing or becoming very small, it's as if it turned inside out and became huge and expansive and gave you this massive, expansive experience. So that is so highly metaphorical. You know, it makes me think of how your your physical neocortex is being ravaged. You know, might, you might say it was collapsing in on itself, yet you were still managing to have this incredible, expansive experience that has changed your life. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit as well. Yes, well, that's a very good way to put it. I'm, I, I love the way that you presented all that because in many ways that's, exactly what I witnessed was this tremendous expansion. And, and it makes you realize that we're basically prisoners in the brain and body and in this material world. We're locked into thinking, you know, that we're prisoners of this kind of here now and sense of self. And yet uh, these kind of experiences show us that we are far grander uh, beings. And so uh, to me, it was a shock how ultra real that Gateway Valley was. You know, my experience as I describe it in the book, Proof of Heaven, it all started in a very primitive course on responsive realm, that earthworm eye view. Uh, and that seemed to go for ages and important to point out, uh, and you've already kind of alluded to it, but one of the striking features of my near-death experience was that I was amnesic. I had no memory whatsoever for any uh, aspects of the life of Evan Alexander. I had no words or language, no knowledge of uh, earth or this universe. I really was starting from an empty slate. Uh, and that's very atypical. Most NDEs don't have that, uh, even though my NDE scores very, very high on the Grayson scale for NDEs, which is a 32-point scale, and I score about 28 or 29. In fact, uh, the only thing that really kept me from getting that perfect score was that amnesia, because I was not able to recognize uh, souls of departed loved ones. And of course, people who've read Proof of Heaven will realize how crucial that was. Uh, that uh, amnesia was absolutely essential uh, for me to come to some of the deepest lessons of this. Uh, but really, I think that's, uh, it's, it's very important to point out, people often think that an NDE is, is kind of murky or dreamlike. Uh, they think, you know, it's something that happens when your brain is very uh, debilitated, and, and therefore it, it's got to be a diminished form of consciousness. And that's the exact opposite of what more than half of people describe in NDEs. 
about this incredibly robust expansion uh, of kind of conscious awareness and knowledge, uh, kind of of self and, and others and universe and relationship. That's why uh, it's very common in a near-death experience that uh, what happens is you uh, reunite with your higher soul. You end up reuniting with souls of departed loved ones. You end up going through that life review. And the life review is not some vague sepia-tinted memories. It's reliving the most important aspects of your life that still hold residual uh, lessons of, of teaching. Um, and the interesting thing is you don't experience it from your perspective. You experience it from the, from the emotional perspective of those who were impacted by your actions and even your thoughts. So you really, you kind of go into their minds to feel uh, the result of your actions. So in that way, it's a very powerful uh, mid-course correction technique. Uh, and when I say all that, of course, I'm referring to something else that you mentioned minutes ago, and that is the notion of reincarnation. Reincarnation is something I never would have seriously considered before my coma. Uh, I'd heard the concept presented before, and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. The brain creates consciousness. You know, the physical is all that exists. There's no way for reincarnation to actually work. But once I actually got over there, and especially in realizing that infinitely loving force, that God force that is so reassuring, that's what, you know, prophets and mystics have brought back for thousands of years. That's been the basis of all of our religious systems is a very kind of common notion of connection, uh, of love and of kind of compassion of a spiritual home uh, that is really uh, very much our home. And, and that was something that was... Uh, brand new to me, experiencing every bit of that. Uh, but reincarnation was the only way to make sense of that infinitely loving God force uh, that I witnessed there, <clears throat> especially given the setting of, uh, you know, harm to innocence like children and animals. There was no way to explain any of that with that infinitely loving and knowing God without the concept of reincarnation. Uh, and I was shown reincarnation in two very powerful ways, especially as my journey ascended. Again, a lot of this is in the book, Proof of Heaven, and then expanded upon in Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, and there's another book uh, called The Map of Heaven, which was the second of the three books. And that one's very important for uh, demonstrating how common these experiences are and why they don't defy science at all and how they go back through history for thousands of years across all belief systems. So really all three books together really paint a pretty complete picture of the unification of modern science and spirituality. But I think another thing I'd like to mention in this context, and it goes back to uh, what you were saying before about the one mind and science and the kind of scientific demonstration of that. And that is to remind people that in medical science, uh, we've been used to the concept of mind over matter uh, for more than six decades now. Uh, through using placebo effect as the gold standard for uh, assessing any new treatment. Uh, medication and sometimes procedures can be assessed uh, through a, a placebo-controlled arm in a trial. And placebo is just the admission from medical science uh, of the reality that a patient's beliefs and attitudes and thoughts can have a dramatic effect on their healing and on whether or not they can heal. Uh, so in other words, mind over matter, which is exactly what we're talking about, is not a new concept in medical science. It's one we've actually depended on for a very long period of time. And yet, uh, in many ways, uh, medical education has continued to be very focused on kind of physicalist versions of, of uh, 
of, of uh, physics, chemistry, and biology. <clears throat> but I think now we're coming to realize through medical science just how powerful placebo effect is, the power of prayer, uh, that one's beliefs can have a tremendous influence on one's coming into healing. And that's what really this whole world is trying to do right now, is to heal. We live in a broken world, and it's broken not just with the COVID pandemic, but with uh, more <clears throat> uh, existential threats like climate change, our addiction to fossil fuels and plastic pollution, things like that. Uh, it, in many ways, uh, in spite of all the benefits we've accrued from science and its uh, contributions to medicine uh, and other aspects of our life, when you look at uh, humanity at large in the year 2020, you find a world that we've over-polluted with carbon dioxide to the point where we're getting superstorms, uh, droughts uh, with the, these tremendous fires, uh, record hurricane seasons, etc., uh, sea level rising, and all this is just going to continue until we uh, overcome our addiction to fossil fuels. And so in many ways, we have to grow into homo sapiens. Homo sapiens means wise. Well, I don't think we're totally wise when I look at the damage to this planet, and especially to the threatened extinction of probably around a million species right now if we don't change our ways pretty dramatically over the next few decades. So this is really about a unification of science and spirituality that is crucial for the survival of life on this planet. I so agree. I know Grant and Dust also do. Um, many, many people do. You know, this is a time where we're really kind of, uh, it's a reckoning, isn't it? And it makes me think again about your experience at the NDE in terms of the, everything collapsing in on itself and then expanding. It's as if we in the glow in this 3D reality we're living in on this planet right now that we are experiencing that kind of collapsing in on itself. There's a great deal of pressure that's occurring because of climate change, because of politics, so many things. Yet we also feel this great expansion occurring at the same time. Um, so I just thought that was a really interesting mirror, you know, that aspect of your NDE and then what's happening for all of us uh, on the planet right now. And actually, just hearkening back to your NDE again for a second, um, there was an, uh, there's a specific aspect I wanted to ask you about. Um, this touches on a number of different things that you've done in your work, um, the quantum field being one of them. You mentioned that at one point during the process of going into this other realm during your NDE experience, that you were either in or you saw a sort of pillar of slowly swirling white light that was accompanied by music. And then I noticed that in a lot of your... Um, work you mentioned other examples of sound for example you said that to you god is the sound om and uh you also have um i believe co-founded sacred acoustics with karen newell i'm not sure if she co-founded it with someone else i'm sorry i didn't look into that but i know that you are working on uh, acoustic tools with karen to deliver yes. frequencies that help people go into transcendental meditative states so that they can improve on their awareness and expansion of their own consciousness um, and I am a deaf person. I have a 90% hearing loss, and I, I believe that my deafness is for a reason. Grant has experienced downloads telling him that uh, the message is in the music. So it seems like sound is a very big part of the expansion of our consciousness in a variety of different ways, you know, with music, with frequency, with the vibration. I was wondering if you could speak to that as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Now, uh, one thing I will clarify, I am not a co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. You are correct uh, in your surmisal that that was actually uh, Karen Newell and Kevin Cossey, her business partner. Uh, they formed Sacred Acoustics. Um, it was, uh, you know, a lot, I had a lot to do with the early uh, 
uh, action that resulted in that. In fact, I was one of their biggest fans. I knew they were doing some tremendous work in differential frequency uh, brainwave entrainment uh, in taking what uh, is known as uh, uh, binaural beats. Um, but let me, let me go back to how you originally phrased your question, because I, I love that. It was kind of the introduction of how my NDE itself uh, brought the notion of music, vibration, and frequency in, because that's a very crucial concept. Uh, and the first place that I, I noticed it in my journey was um, after I'd been in that earthworm eye view, the very primitive course uh, starting spot for my uh, near-death experience. I was aware of a slowly spinning white light and it came towards me. And the best thing about it in many ways, not just the visual clarity and the purity of it, but it came with a, a, a musical melody. And in many ways, it was kind of a perfect musical melody. And I think it's important at this point to remind our listeners that uh, in those realms, in these journeys, one of the reasons that people say they're, uh, you know, an NDE is ineffable or indescribable beyond the words of our language uh, is that there is, we have knowledge through identification. There are tremendous ways that we come to know things there. Like that life review is a perfect example of all these things happening almost at once, and yet we're able to process every bit of it. Um, now, uh, for me, that, that first portal, that first uh, uh, light that served as a portal up into the rich ultra Rio Gateway Valley came with that perfect musical melody. And the reason that was so important is I could easily remember the notes of the melody. And, and, and the main point to make here is those were not notes being heard by ears. Uh, in those realms, we don't see with the eyes, we don't hear with the ears. We have knowledge through identification when we become huge swathes of the scene that the universe is trying to present to us. Uh, and I think that's one of the most important points because that's why the music that I heard there is not a music that could ever be performed in the limitations our, of our four-dimensional space-time. That is, it's not a music you would ever hear here. And yet I have a memory of it, of those notes uh, that I think anyone can access when they go deep and traverse the veil uh, and, and uh, with any techniques that allow us to go deep into primordial mind. Um, now, the other thing to point out is that uh, yet again, in the second uh, level that I visited, that Gateway Valley, uh, it was filled with Earth-like features. It was very uh, ultra-real. It was much more real than this world. And again, a lot of that ultra-reality comes from the fact that you're becoming huge swathes of the scene as your way of knowing about them. It's not just a linear narrative or watching things with eyes or hearing with ears, but it's this... Uh, Kind of assemblage of, of modes of knowing that uh, in that world of pure consciousness can all come together more fully. Now there was a lot of joy and festivity in that gateway valley. I remember seeing thousands of beings dancing below, lots of joy and merriment, and I described it in proof of heaven that that merriment was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic choirs, and they were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness. Uh, and, and they were fueling this incredible joy and, and mirth that was all uh, unfolding below me. Uh, and yet that was not the be-all and end-all of my journey, because in fact, those angelic choirs and the music that they were providing uh, turned into another portal of light, uh, kind of like a wormhole, taking me to higher and higher levels. And that's when I really witnessed all of four-dimensional space-time and the earthly realms collapsing down, and then even... Uh, what, what I call deep time. There's a 
whole different order in causality. We seem to think in our world that time has this very kind of steady flow that's universal for all of us. But that is not, not the deeper truth. The deeper truth is that there is a time flow uh, at these richer spiritual realms that allows for all the events that, that we see unfolding here, things like reincarnation. The reason a life review can happen like that, it can happen during a cardiac arrest that only lasts for a few minutes, and yet it's absolutely complete and all-inclusive for the participant. And that's because uh, in those realms, we're not limited by earth time at all. Uh, and that's a very crucial concept for people to get because sometimes people hear about reincarnation, they get all worried and say, well, what if my beloved spouse who left the physical world 10 years ago is not there to welcome me when I cross over? Well, pretty much by definition, given that this universe exists to support sentient beings and their journeys of discovery, and that's what contributes to the evolution of consciousness itself, uh, I would say that that kind of thing doesn't happen, that the important thing is the relationship. So, of course, our loved one is going to be there. And, and when you fully understand deep time, you understand how all that can happen. Um, but music, vibration, frequency, uh, and as you pointed out also, even in that highest realm, as I traverse this next portal, uh, out of the Gateway Valley into the core realm, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the love and healing force of that divine God force. Uh, and in that core realm, witnessing the entire, entire higher dimensional multiverse shrunken down to this complex oversphere as part of the lessons I was to be taught. And yes, that, that all, that was the sound that I heard there. That's how I identified that incredible oneness, that primordial mind, that God force of pure consciousness, the source of our very conscious awareness. That's what I called Alm when I came back to this world. Because I knew in those early weeks of when I was coming back, trying to make sense of all this, the word God was a puny little human word with a lot of baggage that really had nothing to do with the awe and power and majesty of that infinitely loving deity that I encountered there. I came to realize that whether you use the word God, Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit, I don't care what word you use. The bottom line is that force is absolutely real at the core of all reality, completely beyond any kind of uh, uh, argument between superficial religious orthodoxy. This is where I see all of our religions in many ways can come together and support a much richer uniform spirituality where we're all truly one and in this together and here to manifest those forces of love and compassion and kindness for all involved. That's the deepest lesson coming from the world of NDEs. It's what religions have tried to teach us for thousands of years. The golden rule in many ways is written into the very fabric of the universe uh, in that life review. Uh, treat others as you would like to be treated. Because in your life review, you're going to feel what it felt like to be treated the way you treated people. Uh, that's why it serves as such a great course corrector. Uh, it's why I believe overall the arc of human destiny uh, bends towards justice and more towards kindness and compassion and taking care of each other because all of these life reviews and all of these reincarnations are slowly and inexorably leading us into a world where we'll finally learn that we are truly one and we have a responsibility in our choices to care for each other. And this is the most fundamental and important lesson that comes out of the NDE world. And now that it aligns so perfectly with the emerging science of consciousness, 
Uh, I, I think uh, that is what will enable this whole world to take this lesson much more seriously and realize it's not just a question of whether what you want to believe or not believe, but let's pay attention to the facts uh, and to what is told by, you know, tens of thousands of near-death experiencers who have been to the other side and come back to this world. And then look at all of the evolving science of consciousness, uh, as we point out in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And people can learn about this even without reading that book. If you go to evanalexander.com uh, and right there at the entry page, there's an invitation to for a free 33-day email course, your 33-day journey into the heart of consciousness. Just join up with that and you'll be on board quickly without having to pay a penny with a course that more than 10,000 people have taken uh, worldwide to date. They leave their comments and their own experiences. So it's a growing community to help people grow into this. Also, I'd, I would invite people uh, to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, that's a, a very important site that uh, we run, Karen and I run, um, and have been um, since the pandemic began, really early this year. Every two weeks, we've had exciting guests, scientists, experiencers, uh, mediums, uh, all kinds of people who have something very relevant to say about this. So unitedinhopeandhealing.com is an excellent resource for people to get on board with this quickly. EvanAlexander.com, and for those who want to learn more about the meditation, go right to sacredacoustics.com. And I can highly recommend that. That's Karen's website, Karen Newell. She's my life partner. She also co-wrote the book, Living in a Mindful Universe with me. Uh, she's the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Sacred Acoustics are very powerful sounds uh, that have uh, uh, the ability to uh, uh, yield uh, transcendental journeys into primordial mind and uh, traverse these various levels of consciousness. And just to kind of cut to the chase, the reason these sounds are so powerful uh, and I believe important uh, really is a reason that goes back more than two decades, uh, or sorry, two centuries. Uh, these sounds, binaural beats, were first discovered to induce uh, changes in kind of mental function uh, by a Prussian physicist back in the mid-1800s. Then in the late uh, 1900s, uh, uh, various investigators found that, that uh, binaural beats could enhance um, out-of-body experiences. They could enhance remote viewing, uh, you know, as we talked about the psychic spy programs. And, and now here in the 21st century, I think with sacred acoustics, binaural beats have gone to a whole new level in terms of their ability to help people get into deep states of conscious awareness. And the main reason, from my point of view, is that these sounds are processed in the lower brainstem in a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago. Most of the circuits used in the brain for processing sound, any chant or anthem or hymn you might have heard that engendered a, a transcendental state of conscious awareness, those are all processed up in the neocortex, all up in the um, acoustic cortex of the temporal lobe in circuits that arose in the last, uh, say, one to five million years in, in primates and in Homo sapiens. Uh, that's why I think that binaural beats like sacred acoustics that actually have their impact way down in the lower brainstem in circuits that arose more than 300 million years ago, take advantage of an observation uh, in science that if you wanna understand more about a given function like consciousness, what you need to do is follow down the evolutionary chain and the anatomical chain back to the origins. And so by going into the lower brainstem into some of these ancient circuits that have been around since before mammals even walked this earth, 
Uh, that's why I believe that these sounds have such a profound effect on helping people to realize the voice in their head is not their consciousness. That little linguistic brain, your uh, ego mind, uh, is not your conscious awareness. Uh, and you can develop a relationship with that inner observer and that kind of higher soul, that primordial mind, by learning to go within. And I meditate an hour or two a day with sacred acoustics. I've been doing that uh, for more than 10 years now, and I've found it to be of great value uh, in uh, unpacking my NDE and developing strong relationships with all the, the kind of denizens of that realm that I first encountered 12 years ago. Uh, Dr. Alexander, let me ask you two questions and so I'll sort of put them together. You can sort of weave them together. You probably know there was a famous article written in uh, Scientific America about uh, Aunt Millie's brain, about the, the whole deal of the uh, person who has Alzheimer's and, and the consciousness disappears, which proves that uh, all consciousness is chemical. Can you talk a little bit about terminal lucidity and can you talk about what the material scientists say when you bring it up? I mean, do they hide under the table or how do they handle this? And the other question I have is, is sort of related. We, the, people will accuse near-death experience and all sorts of mystical experiences to be hallucinatory experiences. But what I've seen is if you take your near-death experience, your brain shuts down, Jill Bolte-Taylor has left brain hemorrhage, her brain shuts down, or whether you get the psilocybin experiment that was done at at London College where you see the default mode network shuts down, when it's, it appears to me that when you shut down the brain, you shut off the hallucination that I am separate, that uh, the world is flat, all these kind of things, and you go into the real experience. So can you talk about the idea of, of the, the, the experience being the real thing that most people were described, this was more real than the real world, and this idea of, of, of uh, terminal lucidity? Yes, well, I'm glad you brought those up. They're very, very important kind of concepts, and uh, we discuss them in a lot of detail in Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, now, Alzheimer's is an example. I mean, it's a, a disease that unfortunately is increasing in its prevalence now, and uh, it's, it's getting to be uh, quite common, and, and many families in this world know somebody with Alzheimer's. It's a tragic thing to witness, um, but what I would point out is that something like 5 to 10% of Alzheimer's patients, as they get close to the end of life, uh, seem to have these moments of terminal lucidity. And it's especially uh, statistically likely within a few hours to days of death. Uh, I've heard of cases of terminal lucidity in people whose brains had been more than half replaced with metastatic cancer, who might have been in coma uh, for uh, months by the time they demonstrate this. And the interesting thing is as they approach death, they wake up, uh, they come back to life. They often are very conversant with loved ones there at the bedside. Uh, but they, the, the thing that really proves it to be real is if at the time when they're uh, you know, terminally lucid and communicating with loved ones, going over life memories and all that, uh, if they're also witnessing departed loved ones who are coming to welcome them to the other side, I have a case of exactly that in, um, in Proof of Heaven. Uh, and it's a case of terminal lucidity that happened to a very good friend of mine. In fact, the reason I put it in the book was he is the chairman of one of the top neurosurgical training programs on earth, one of the most respected neuroscientists on earth. And yet when he saw this at his father's bedside, when his father was passing uh, from the physical world, he was absolutely convinced, my friend was, that his grandmother's soul, that would be the, the mother of this uh, patient who is departing the world, 
was absolutely right there at the at the foot of the bed. And my friend said it was uh, as real as could be in terms of what he saw his father witnessing, even though my friend did not see her soul at the foot of the bed. But he came away a very strong believer in the reality of that kind of experience. And I think terminal lucidity is something that is not uncommon. Uh, in fact, uh, I was at a meeting of the uh, hospice and palliative care physicians a year and a half ago, uh, where it was a huge point of discussion. They started the discussion of, I think there were 500 or so healthcare workers in the room discussing episodes of what they call terminal delusions. Uh, you know, and that, and that was the language they used to describe it. Uh, but then I stood up and made the point for the group, you know, that some of these are actually terminal lucidity. And I, I described it in detail, you know, that it's much more lucid and it's inexplicable in the setting of a prior coma. And that's when people started volunteering their own episodes that they had seen of terminal lucidity, just as I was pointing out, uh, something that completely defies conventional science and it's, uh, you know, the production model, that is the notion that the brain produces consciousness out of physical matter. Uh, because the, the modern theory that's really taking over uh, in the scientific circles is the brain is a filter, uh, you know, that the brain filters. It allows primordial consciousness, which uh, already exists and basically uh, is a force that's running uh, many of the events of the universe, that, that God force of uh, that uh, consciousness that uh, in the ears have experienced, you come to see that uh, in a whole different perspective, uh, kind of in, from this broader viewpoint. Uh, and so we look at the brain as a filter, and, and that's not a new idea. Filter theory actually originated back in the late, uh, late 1800s. Uh, William James, who was the famous Harvard psychologist, in many ways looked at the father of modern psycho psychology. Uh, he came up with this notion of filter theory to help explain uh, events that, uh, that he uncovered uh, in investigations of kind of human spirituality. F.C.S. Schiller was a big proponent of filter theory. Likewise, in France, Henri Bergson um, and uh, then Aldous Huxley in the United States in his talk about psychedelic drugs. Uh, so all of this is a very, uh, terminal lucidity is a very profound uh, piece of evidence that suggests that the model we're talking about here, primordial mind, and the brain is a filter and that we're all sharing one mind is a true model. And you also brought up those interesting uh, papers uh, looking at psychedelic drugs. And you mentioned the one by Robin Carhart Harris out of Imperial College London in 2012. That one is actually listed in the bibliography of Proof of Heaven, even though the textual description of it was uh, taken away by editors uh, in the last stages of putting that book out. Uh, but in Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk about it in detail. Not only that paper, but subsequent papers out of other research centers looking at other drugs like uh, um, psilocybin was looked at in that original paper you talked about, magic mushrooms. Uh, and, and they use, also used a visual analog scale where they basically came to the conclusion that the more profound the phenomenal experience of the person on psilocybin, the more their brain actually goes dark. In other words, the brain is not creating any of this. There's no part of the brain that has an increase in neural activity. Every bit of it is going to sleep, getting out of the way. When I saw those papers, you bet they got my attention because that's exactly what I experienced uh, in meningoencephalitis for a week that had so demonstrably dim uh, destroyed my neocortex. Um, and that's why people should 
uh, read the case report because in the case report, they make it clear that this brain was not the, the brain that would be able to have any kind of dream or hallucination. Those parts of my brain were already inactivated by the meningoencephalitis. Uh, and that's why these cases are so extraordinary. And, the, and the, especially the, these uh, scientific papers looking at, with fMRI, magnetoencephalography, uh, at the function of the brain. Uh, and, and it's been extended to work with LSD, with DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in uh, ayahuasca. Uh, all of these are serotonin drugs that influence the neocortex. So that's where the receptors are. And so you can imagine if they have that much uh, kind of influence on showing you an alternate reality. And I think the more you read of that psychedelic uh, literature, the more you realize they're describing not just uh, kind of hallucinations and uh, kind of visions that have nothing to do with any reality, but they're describing a common reality, uh, as are NDEers. I mean, the more you study near-death experiences, you more, the more you find they're all describing some very similar territory. And that's why we need to study those realms more extensively. That's why I do the work with Karen with sacred acoustics, because that's a driving technique. We're looking for, scientists are looking for driving techniques to enable people to enter these transcendental states of conscious awareness uh, and, uh, uh, you know, learn more about our true nature, which is, I would say, what's happening there. But the important thing that these, all these scientific papers point out to us is you're not going to ultimately find all the answers in brain activity. Now, as a neuroscientist, yes, I'll confess, the more we know about the brain, the better, but don't expect to find all the answers in the brain because there's a tremendous amount of kind of the content and what we experience and what we learn there that's not happening in the brain at all. Uh, and it's an important thing when, when we talk about this, I like to use the brain and the body are kind of like the display on your computer. So yes, understanding the uh, mechanisms at work in your display are important to telling you what's going to appear on that screen. But the real content of what appears on your screen is not really due to uh, you know, the physics and the chemistry of the display itself, but they're happening way down in the, in the CPU and in the innards of the computer itself, which by this metaphor, this analogy, are not part of the physical world at all. The physical world is not the, the creator and origin of our thoughts, our awareness, um, and uh, even our memory. And in fact, we talk about that in detail in Living in a Mindful Universe, how memory is not even stored in the physical brain. And that is such a nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience that most people don't talk about it. But neurosurgeons have observed for decades that out of the millions of resections of brain that we've done, there's never been a case where huge swathes of long-term memory seem to have disappeared with any kind of brain resection. Now, it is true that if you operate on the medial temporal lobes and the hippocampus and parts of the limbic system, as was shown by an operation in 1953 by Bill Scoville on a patient named HM, that you can interfere with short-term to long-term memory conversion. But that's not the same as finding memory stored somewhere in the brain. And that's especially when you get into the reincarnation literature, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, for your listeners, I would steer them to uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies.org. You'll find a tremendous amount of scientific literature developed over the last six decades of the reality of non-local consciousness, including 
their evidence for more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the best explanation is actually of reincarnation. And these are, are cases that go back to the late 1960s. Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was the head of psychiatry, did a lot of that early work. Uh, it's been taken over more recently by Dr. Jim Tucker. But uh, if you're going to talk about consciousness and conscious awareness, you need to be fully conversant in that incredible body of work of 2,500 cases of past life memories in children to even begin to discuss any of this. So uh, the, the modern science of consciousness is a tremendously exciting field, but there, there's a lot to it. And you really have to do your homework if you feel like you're going to have anything to say about it all. Thank you. And I'm not sure if I fully answered your questions. Yep. Yep. It was a beautiful, full reply, definitely. Thank um, you. That <laughs> makes me think of, um, you know, it, it's, it's such a funny thing, maybe to some people that we are here speaking to you as a neurosurgeon, as someone who, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the mind, we're talking about the brain, you have this medical background of being a neurosurgeon, yet the more we learn about consciousness, the more we go into understanding of ourselves, the more we understand that the mind is really the heart, right? And you said it so beautifully. This is one of the things you said that I really resonated with. Uh, it's a quotation from something I watched. And you said, heart consciousness is the ultimate form of conscious expression. And well, I, I, I would attribute that brilliant observation to my best half, Karen Newell. She was the one who really, she was a spiritual mentor when I first met her in November 2011. Uh, and she has been a tremendous uh, resource and guide uh, in, in my entire journey of unfolding. But the whole full power of heart consciousness uh, and this kind of primordial mind of the universe and that binding force of love is something that I've, I've really uh, kind of put together through her assistance and her wisdom. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Dr. Alexander, there's uh, a combination of different things that you've said that I've kind of put together um, it relates quite directly to what you were just your response to Grant just now. And I wanted to just read this out to you um, and um, have you respond to these different pieces because they're all from different things that you've either written or said at different times. But of course, uh, everything is interconnected, so they all connect to each other. So what I've got here is you said no human being has ever witnessed anything other than the inside of their own consciousness and that you and Karen Newell call this the supreme illusion. Um, everything that we think is out there, outside of us, is actually an internal construct, and that the supreme illusion is a very powerful and seductive force, and we must recognize this if we, are, if we want truth, if we want to actually get to truth. And then this is a quotation from you. You said, you cannot just gather information, read books and articles and watch DVDs. The only way to actually get it is to go within. This is about recovering some ancient lessons. The consolidation of science and spirituality is absolutely unprecedented and is leading to a revolution in human thinking. A tremendous awakening for humanity is upon us even now. And that makes me think again what, what Karen said about the, the ultimate expression of consciousness being through the heart because at the moment, uh, again, you know, we're experiencing such massive pressure globally and it's more challenging for people to be kind to come from a place of the heart, right? They're, they're, we're seeing a lot of uh, conflict, a lot of division, a lot of separateness as people express in different ways the stress that they are feeling from, from climate change, from politics, from economics, whatever it might be. Um, 
And so if you could speak to the fact that this is all really just a supreme illusion that we are being drawn into, um, that takes us, it's, it's a very convincing distraction. It takes us outside of ourselves rather than us focusing on the inside, the internal journey that leads us more and more to that mind that really is the heart. Can you speak a bit to that? Well, that, that's beautiful the way uh, you, you put it all out there. And that supreme illusion is very important. And, you know, the thing is, we're, we're, we all kind of accept that we are these physical beings that can perceive a world that is out there. And what we assume is there is a physical world out there independent of us. But one of the biggest and most profound lessons of quantum physics is there's no such thing as an observer independent kind of observation. Uh, it truly uh, is so heavily filtered with our nervous systems and everything. There, there's no way that we can even get to some ultimate reality except for admitting uh, that uh, we have an awareness uh, and there is a world out there. Um, but the mistake is in believing that it's independent of us. And, and this is a very crucial concept. The whole idea of the supreme illusion is just to remind people uh, you know, as you sit there looking around at this world around you and sensing your presence in it, um, you're, you're actually witnessing the inside of a model. Uh, you know, there, there's no yellow to, to the sun, or there's no blue to the sky. These are, uh, you know, electromagnetic waves that uh, are bringing information that, that we kind of perceive in certain ways. Uh, and yet even, <coughs> excuse me, even uh, some of the facts of what is out there, uh, quantum physics call, calls all of that into deep question. And that's where I think, uh, it, for example, there's a, a concept that John Wheeler, who was the head of physics at Princeton in the 20th century, uh, talked about a lot. It's uh, the participatory anthropic principle. And in, in this principle, he kind of muses over a photon coming from a distant galaxy and how an observer, uh, uh, an astronomer might choose to observe that. Um, as wave or particle and the choices they make will actually influence that particle all the way back to its origin. Uh, and the thing that's so amazing about that is it really makes you question deeply anything of our concepts of space and time. And we have to start realizing that um, there's no way to separate the observer from the observed. Uh, and that in many ways, this is an important lesson for all of us as human beings that are living in this universe, there's no part of it that is independent of, I'm sorry, that's one of our puppies getting excited about this webinar. Um, but um, uh, there's no way of kind of making it uh, uh, that the, the universe is ever, you know, separated from the observer. Uh, and, and we go into that in a lot more detail in, in living in a mindful universe to try and explain it and the supreme illusion. But these are both, both very powerful concepts in helping us come to a deeper understanding of our existence in this universe, our relationship to it, and our free will as, as uh, uh, determining anything that comes out uh, of our detected reality as we live our lives here. Uh, but most important of all is to take the deep lessons of the science, uh, with the tip of the spear being the near-death experience, and realize it's all conveying to us a profound reality about our world that is very concrete about our existence being uh, uh, entangled deeply with existence of our fellow beings. And so really to hurt another is truly to hurt ourselves. 
And this is something that becomes very clear to NDEers or to death experiencers during their life review. But it's something that all of us need to be aware of because our materialist uh, preconceptions in this world lead to a false sense of separation. And that has led to all kinds of damage. For example, the economic polarization. We have economic systems here that greatly concentrate wealth in the hands of the few at the very tip top of the socioeconomic pile. And I believe that is from a false sense of separation where people believe that we're in competition and therefore you get all the goodies on your table at the expense of your competitors and that's the name of the game. But that's not true. That's what, not what NDEers will tell you. Having been through those life reviews, they'll realize that this is all about helping others. And so our economic polarization and uh, uh, likewise a healthcare system that at least in the United States uh, does not uh, ha have much of a safety net for those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. These are all kind of policy decisions and things that have come into our society and our culture that are heavily dependent on that outmoded view of separation that is part of the materialist mindset. And this is why it's so important for the world at large to grow beyond. We need a post-materialist society that fully acknowledges the oneness of being and that we should manifest in all of our choices in dealing with ourselves and others, love, kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, and when necessary, forgiveness. These are the rules that should guide our interactions with ourselves and others. Um, and I believe the world is rapidly awakening towards this. The COVID pandemic, has revealed some of the uh, really bad kind of uh, uh, undercarriage of our social networks and all of that kind of thing. And we really need to come up with a world that works much better and one that is not so dependent on the fossil fuels, et cetera. We need to take stewardship for this planet. That's a lot of what this awakening uh, is really all about. Uh, and I, I believe, I'm very optimistic about where it's headed. Uh, I believe that uh, the silver lining is there with the vaccine promise from both Moderna and Pfizer around COVID. I think uh, even though the curves are worsening around the world, if we'll all do social distancing and masking, uh, and take all this seriously, we'll be able to suppress this virus. And then with vaccines, we'll get to herd immunity. And within a few years, we'll put this behind us. But hopefully, we will learn tremendous lessons about taking care of each other. Uh, that to me is the most important part of this awakening that I think is inevitable in the scientific community around the nature of consciousness. Uh, and it's all really um, the way for humanity to finally become homo sapiens, you know, the wise that we claim, I don't believe we've ever really shown. And it is high time we awakened to that reality. And that's what I believe this entire awakening to a higher consciousness is truly all about. Uh, Dr. Alexander, you brought up the post-material uh, world, um, and we're come up, we've come up on the hour, so I just want to quickly, I have to get a question, and you mentioned the Galileo Commission, which gives us some hope that, that we are heading in the right direction, but I have a hypothetical question I want to ask you first, and that's the, you've mentioned reincarnation, and you've also mentioned from time to time the work of Dr. Michael Newton. Do you think there's a chance that you, your younger sister, and Karen are on a mission, and that this was all planned beforehand? Absolutely. <laughs> I think you're, you're right on the beam. And, and that is something, I think that was apparent to me when I first met Karen. I could feel it. I felt that heart connection very strongly. 
but in a way that, you know, it was uh, like old souls reconnecting over uh, a powerful world-changing mission. That's what it was. It was not uh, uh, anything less than that. It was a very uh, kind of high-end sense of connection. Yes, I would say my birth sister was absolutely essential to this, even though I did not know her uh, in this lifetime. And, and she left the physical plane uh, in 1998, two years before I even knew of her existence. But yes, when you started talking about reincarnation and past life memories, uh, I would say, yes, you're exactly right. There's a tremendous amount of evidence that all of these things are coalescing uh, and it's all working towards our growth, uh, you know, as human beings towards our true nature. Uh, I would say this revolution has been building for 5,000 years uh, and it's, it's this uh, synthesis of science and spirituality uh, that will mark uh, at least one milestone uh, in the ascendance and progress of that revolution. Um, but I, I will confess that I think at the end of the day, we cannot even envision where all of this is ultimately headed. I think it's headed in a far grander direction than all this, but this is the next necessary step for humanity. If we're going to join a much grander club, and uh, you know, I, I mentioned in Proof of Heaven, I don't go into detail about it, but I did have visions of very advanced uh, uh, civilizations uh, in this universe. Uh, some that were as far beyond us as we are beyond earthworms. There was a very strong sense that all of consciousness and sentience throughout the universe is participating in various ways to this tremendous growth. And for us to actually join that club, uh, we have to be far more civilized than we are right now. I think right now, when I look at Homo sapiens, I see a bunch of uh, uh, primates that have barely come out of the cave. We have to do a lot more to grow together into being truly wise and sapiens if we're going to claim that name. And certainly if we're going to join that much grander uh, club of, of, uh, of, I would say, civilizations that have mastered the traversal of space and time. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. That's such a wonderful example and a great way to, to end our, our interview with you. And I think you made Grant's whole day just now when you answered absolutely to his question. He just started practically clapping. So, oh, great. Well, from my point of view, that's a huge part of it is that we are uh, you know, only one of many uh, advanced civilizations. We're obviously a very primitive member, uh, but we are soon going to have the opportunity to join that club in a very public fashion. Uh, and that is something, now I don't claim to have any specific knowledge of kind of when and how that's gonna happen, but it was a strong sense from both my NDE and from my meditations that it is inevitable. And it's one of the things that I believe is driving uh, this incredibly important uh, evolution of our consciousness beyond the status quo. Our conventional consciousness leading to this point uh, is woefully inadequate to the task. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's really exciting and encouraging to hear from you after all the work that you've done, the incredible in-depth and breadth of work that you've done uh, to hear from you, that you feel that, that you feel that it's a guaranteed thing, that it's actually happening, that it's inevitable that we will uh, shift and change it to become better than we are, because we certainly do need to do that. Yes, um, and we, we have a tremendous responsibility to do that in our choices. In other words, just pretending that the old status quo is fine is, is false. It's not. We need to wake up to who we truly are and take stewardship, uh, not only for this planet, but for all of our role in the evolution of consciousness itself. 
Yes, and I, I think too, we need to show that we understand that with action, not just with words. Uh, absolutely. We've got to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Yeah, it's very easy. I mean, many, many people say they, they understand love and compassion and consciousness, but it's, it's another thing entirely when you walk through life demonstrating that understanding to other people, to plants, to animals, to right. your enemies. Absolutely. For all of our fellow beings. Yes. So, very important lesson. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, for being here. It has truly been an honor and just a wonderful conversation. You have so much to offer us, and it's such a wonderful, encouraging uh, confirming and exciting message. Your work is amazing and we're very grateful. Thank you for being well, here. Well, thank you very much for having me and uh, namaste. Namaste to you as well and to Karen too. Oh, well, thank Karen. you very much. I'll pass that on to her. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.